All right, hey Porsche folks, good to be back with you today. Um, I'm here in my office again, and let's see, what hat do I have on today? Oh, the original Niners logo, like the old school Niners logo. I know most of you guys really only tune in to uh, try to find out uh, what hat I'm going to be wearing. So you can turn it off now, just kidding. Um, also, just real quick, today is the last day for the picnics. It's our last picnic today, so... Um, 12.30 at Marina Green, that's if you're watching this Sunday morning um, before, you know, and you have enough time to get down there. Um, and then in a couple of weeks, we're going to start getting back together uh, at the Powell Street location. So um, if you don't know the details for that, I'm not going to get into it all now, but I'm really excited about our summer series and all that, uh, all the details about that is, um, we have them on the website there. So if you want to go check out the website, um, you can find out all that stuff. All right, uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke uh, chapter 9. We're going to keep going today. I'm going to start by talking about um, sort of what kind of story we're going to read here. Um, you guys know I like to read a lot, and I read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of books. I actually like audiobooks better than I like reading books. Um, I seem to retain the information better when I hear something. Um, but anyway, you guys know I go through a lot of books. And um, uh, one of the kinds of books, though, that I try to avoid like the plague I don't really like autobiographies. They're not really that interesting to me, and I don't really trust people to be honest about what happened in their lives and their failures and all that sort of stuff. Um, recently, after the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton wrote a book called, um, it was called What Happened, and I read that book, and um, it was interesting, but there was also a book called uh, by some reporters. And these reporters followed Hillary Clinton around because what they were planning on doing was writing sort of the inside scoop to the first woman president and how she became president. And they were pretty big fans of Hillary. They were pretty excited about her winning. All the polls showed she was going to win. And then when they lost, when she lost um, to Trump in 2016, um, uh, you know, everybody was shocked, but especially these guys. And they had to pivot their book um, and they ended up sort of writing a similar book to what she wrote, what happened, you know? And it was interesting. I read both of those two books because I was just curious. And it was interesting to me just how different the telling was from somebody who was there versus Hillary's telling. And a lot of what went wrong for her was campaign managers and this and that, right? But according to these guys, a lot of what went wrong was just it was Hillary, right? She wasn't, a, you know, like there were a lot of things wrong with her as a candidate. And so... Um, anyway, it was just really interesting. Here's the thing. The Gospels are different, and this is one of the things that's fascinating about reading the Gospels. Now, the Gospels are primarily about Jesus, but there's a lot of other characters in the Gospels. These disciples play prominent roles in these stories. And these books that we read, these four books, were written by, uh, well, Matthew and, um, Matthew and John were actual part of the 12. Mark was a kid who hung out with Jesus and was around a lot. And Luke, what he did, the one we're reading, he actually went to um, a lot of these guys and got the information directly from them and just wrote down their stories. So basically, as we read these stories, these are written by people, for the most part, or the stories were told by people who were there. And one of the really interesting things is that as you read the Gospels, the guys who ended up telling these stories, they don't come out looking very good. They actually come out looking pretty horribly. And part of the reason, though, that they were able to be so honest is because they really understood the Gospel of grace, right? They don't have to be good enough for Jesus to love them. And so when they start to write these stories down after the ascension and all that stuff, you know, a couple of years later, like Mark was within 25, 30 years 
of, um, you know, Jesus's uh, death, resurrection, and ascension. When they start to write this stuff down, they really told what happened. And they were brutally honest about their failure and their sin and their stupidity in a lot of cases. Today's text is, boy, it's one of those. It's a whopper of a, um, of a story where these disciples really come off looking horribly. So we're going to pick this up in the middle of verse 43. Um, if you have an ESV Bible, the little section header says, Jesus again foretells his death. So let's take a look at this. It says, but while they were all marveling every, at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they, may, they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Okay, so here's the context of our passage today. If you remember, or you, um, you know, if you weren't with us the last few weeks, um, there was coming down the mountain from the transfiguration where Jesus glowed uh, in front of, you know, his divinity shone through so that Peter, James, and John could see that. Uh, coming down the mountain, they meet up with the other nine disciples. And these other nine disciples have been trying to cast a demon out of this boy that this demon was oppressing. And they weren't able to do it. And uh, Jesus has this conversation with the Father. And if you remember last week, we actually read the same passage, but from the book of Mark, because Mark's telling of that passage is literally one of my favorite spots of the entire Bible. And so we went through and we talked about that. And so this happens after everybody's amazed at what Jesus is doing and his power uh, over the supernatural world. And while all that's kind of going on, and a little while later, you know, people are still kind of buzzing about all the stuff that's been going on with Jesus. He stops and he starts to teach his disciples. And he says, let these words sink into your ears. Now, you know what that's like, right? You know what Jesus is saying there. Because you remember probably being a kid uh, when an adult, um, you know, kind of like uh, tells you to listen up, right? And then you know, uh-oh, something really is important is about to happen. Like, I need to pay attention. And that's what Jesus does. He basically tells the disciples, listen up. And when he gets their attention, he says, now, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That is a huge statement. That is massive. Um, We've talked about this phrase, the Son of Man, I don't know, probably 150 times already in these nine chapters of the book of Luke. Um, But the Son of Man doesn't just mean Jesus was a human. It's a reference uh, to uh, Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, there's this figure like the Son of Man. And basically, it's this divine human figure. And Jesus, by using the Son of Man terminology, he's claiming to be that prophesied person from Daniel chapter 7, right? He's taking on um, that imagery. And so there's this huge, there's this massively powerful Son of Man, but he's about to be delivered into the hands of men. The implication there is the only way that that could happen is if he wanted it to, is if he let that happen, right? Um, It's like... Um, my girls, you know, they like to race me up the stairs. So we live at the top of our apartment building and we don't usually take the elevator because, I mean, it's like one of those elevators from Titanic, you know, where you close the the little gate and, you know, I mean, yeah, probably die in that elevator. So we don't usually take it. We run up the stairs and the girls like to run up the stairs. And uh, one of them, um, been doing this really cute thing where she pretends like she's not racing, you know, and then she runs up the stairs. But really, let's be honest. Can they beat me up the stairs? No. I mean, I might be um, 37 years old with bad knees and a bad back um, and a hurt Achilles, but I'm still probably the fastest person any of you guys know, right? I'm a pretty fast dude, and uh, there's no chance one of these three-year-old girls is going to beat me up the stairs, but they beat me every time. Why? Because well, I let them, right? That's why they beat me. Um, 
that's the same idea here, right? How is it that the Son of Man can be killed and delivered over and all this stuff that he's uh, predicting here by just normal people? It doesn't make any sense, right? He's right, he's the one who always would win the race up the stairs, but it only happens if he lets them. So then that brings us to the question, why? Why would the Son of Man, this great uh, divine figure, why would he submit to death at the hands of ordinary men? The answer is love. And this is what a lot of the book of Luke is, gonna, um, is going to uh, play out and explain, right? Um, Jesus is the king of the upside-down kingdom. And we've talked a lot about this upside-down kingdom. Um, the, the, let me just explain it real quick again. The way the upside-down kingdom works is like a normal power structure is like a pyramid where the person at the top of the pyramid is being supported by everybody else, right? But the kingdom of God is the upside down kingdom. It's the inverted pyramid where Jesus is that capstone, but he's at the bottom and he's supporting everybody. And so in the kingdom of God, the goal is not to push your way to the top, but the goal is to push your way to the bottom. It's to be humble by putting the needs of other people first. And Jesus is the ultimate example of this in the way that he died. Um, and he took on the penalty for sin. And so Jesus is the king of the upside-down kingdom. He is the one who is ultimately loving. And the cross is the ultimate example of him putting you first. And so he let himself be executed for our benefit. But again, the disciples are having trouble with this, right? When Jesus is talking about being this this Messiah, initially they thought that meant some sort of a political Messiah. And he's so he's spending time with them now trying to beat that out of their heads. Again, he talks about, you know, I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to die. Now, they don't get it, right? It says specifically, like, they don't get it. Well, why? Well, a couple reasons. The obvious reason is they don't want to get it. We are really, really, really good at ignoring truth and facts that we don't like, that don't sort of fit our narrative. And that's what's happening here with the disciples on some level. But on another level, there's this other bit that only the, the Gospel of Luke... Um, uh, only the Gospel of Luke puts, wait, let me see, it says here specifically, and it was concealed from them uh, so that they might not perceive it. It was concealed from them, but by who? Who's the one who's hiding this truth from them? Well, there's a couple of ways we can look at this. The first way is to just say, um, you know, uh, whenever something goes wrong, just blame the devil, right? I mean, that's kind of one way that theologians will answer this. Well, somehow the devil is pulling the cloak over their eyes and they're not able to see. But more likely, what's going on here is God was concealing bits of this truth from hitting into their hearts because they weren't ready to understand it completely yet. Jesus is pulling them along in a process and they're not quite all the way done with this process. They still have a lot to learn. And so as they don't understand completely this truth, they're afraid to ask him about it. And so that's an important detail because I think what that means is not that they don't understand what Jesus is saying, right? It's not like he's saying, hey, they're going to hand me over and I'm going to be executed. And they're like, what? I don't understand what that means. That's not what's going on here. They don't understand why he is saying this, right? They, don't, they understand that he is predicting his death. They don't know why he's predicting his death. They don't know why he would die because they're still functioning in the normal power structures of the world. And so instead of learning from the master and instead of going to Jesus and saying, look, we don't understand this. Can you explain what, what's the missing piece? That's not what they do. They just ignore it. I'm just going to pretend like it's not happening. And then look at in the middle of all of this, right? 
Luke is very intentional about where he places this next bit. Look what he says. Look at what these guys, look what these turkeys do, right? Verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Okay, so now you can probably imagine how this went. Uh, you know, as the disciples are all hanging out. And they're walking on the, the road. Um, and they stop. You know, while they're walking, they're, they're talking. Um, you know, if you've ever been on a long, long walk or a long car ride or hike or whatever with a big group of people like a bus ride or something, you know, people get to talking and they start to swap stories and they're, they're talking probably about their missionary journey from a couple, you know, from just a little while ago, a couple verses ago, right? And where they all went out two by two and they were healing and they were casting out demons and whatever. But like usually happens when a group of guys gets together and they start swapping stories, things start to get competitive and they start to try to one-up each other, and they start about, um, you know, just bragging about all the successful ministry that they had while they were on their trip, and who cast out the meanest demon, right? Who healed the hardest disease? Who helped the most people? Who had the most people sort of listening to preaching, and who helped the most people, right? And I'll bet in their minds, they're still thinking Jesus, thinking of Jesus as one of these as like an earthly king, as a political messiah who would set up his kingdom, kick out the Romans. And I bet they're thinking that whoever does the best during the training period is going to get the highest position in the new kingdom of Israel, right? So um, over the years, um, Israel had had like the kingdom with David and then Solomon and then the split kingdom and the no kingdom for a long time. And then the, the Maccabean revolt. And then after that, it's called the Hasmonean dynasty. And then Rome came. So they're hoping like that this Jesus guy will set up the next round of these these dynasties and that they're going to have these high up positions in the, the, the new kingdom. And so I, I don't think the argument here is which one of them is intrinsically the greatest. But I think what they're probably arguing about is who would end up being the greatest in the coming kingdom. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why we think that. But anyway, do you see the irony in what's going on here? Um, it, it basically goes against everything that Jesus is trying to teach them about the upside down kingdom. So first, Jesus talks about his death. He talks about his resurrection. He tries to explain what kind of Messiah he's going to be and that he's not the kind of Messiah that they've been hoping for. And um, he, he's trying to teach them about the coming cross and death and all this stuff. And and what he says then is, if, if that happens to me, then you can expect the same kind of suffering as my followers, right? And it was that whole bit about take up your cross and follow me. And just the hard, um, the hard, the, the big commitment that it is and just how hard it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And he's trying to, to teach them all about this upside down kingdom. And then in the middle of all of this, they start having this argument about who's going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom. It's a completely boneheaded move that these disciples later on were willing to admit. Um, so what does Jesus do? How does Jesus handle this? Verse 47, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me, uh, receives, me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great." So first it says here that Jesus was um, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Um, I think that's a really interesting detail that almost every commentator and people kind of skipped over. It wasn't like a big deal in the stuff that I was reading, but I was thinking about this and um, think about it, right? If Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts, um, 
notice, I guess, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Jesus overheard their argument and he went in and he started asking them, what were you guys, you know, you know, what, how are you arguing about who's the greatest or whatever? What it says is he knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And the implication there is that the disciples knew at least enough to know that what they were arguing about is not what Jesus was teaching. And so they kept it. They didn't have the argument in front of him. They had it somewhere else where, you know, they, you know, like, um, you know, kids, right? When you were a kid, if you had brothers or sisters and, you know, there were things you didn't do in front of your parents because you knew they were wrong. And that's exactly what's going on here, right? And so they did this when Jesus wasn't around. And so Jesus, knowing the reasoning in their hearts, he, he's, he knows what's going on and he knows this argument. Um, I think even one of the other parallel, you could be wrong about this, but I think one of the other parallel um, uh, stories um, in one of the other gospels, I think Jesus even goes over and says, hey, what were you guys talking about? You know, just kind of to make it even more awkward that they make them admit what they were talking about. But anyway, um, so the way Jesus answers this is he does this sort of living illustration. He takes this child and Jesus is the master teacher. And this is so brilliant. So what he does here is he takes his child, he puts a child right in the middle of where all the disciples can see. Now, in our culture, we would see a child, a little cute kid, and we would, oh, how cute, you know, look at his little cheeks or whatever, right? Um, Jesus, though, that's not what he's doing. He's making a very specific point here, and he chose a child for a reason. Um, in the ancient Near East culture, children had very little worth um, in society. One rabbi wrote this. Um, I found this quote. One rabbi wrote, Morning sleep, midday wine, and chattering with children... Let's see. Sorry, let me read this again. Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of the common people assemble, these destroy a man. Right, basically. So there's this list of stuff you should never do because it will destroy you. And one of those is spending time with kids. Why would this rabbi say this? Because spending time with kids to these folks was sort of a waste of time because kids don't really give anything back, right? They're almost like leeches. Um, so why spend time and invest in somebody who can't really give you anything back right now? Um, so kids in this society, as much as we hate to say this in our society, kids in this society were really the bottom of the ladder. And so Jesus puts this bottom of the ladder, bottom of society, in the middle of all these people. And he says, Look, whoever receives this child receives me. He, that's how closely Jesus identifies with the people at the bottom, right? The, the lowest of the low. That's the point here, right? It's not, we don't want to read too much of the child into it. That's what Jesus is saying. By loving and serving those who can't love, or, you know, I mean, they can love, but who can't really serve you back or pay you back. That's participating in the upside down kingdom. You're doing for others what Jesus did for you, Right? doing something without expectation of payment in return. And then Jesus says this, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. So our world, we think of greatness in one very specific way, being better than other people at whatever it is you do. So when we ask who's the greatest basketball player of all time, which seems to be a big debate that happens on SportsCenter and stuff, all these talk shows, like my favorite TV show is a show called... Um, uh, pardon the interruption. It's these two guys that yell at each other about sports. Anyway, when we talk about who's the greatest player in the history of the NBA, what we're asking is who has the most skill, who had the most accomplishments, right? Who sits at the top of all of these great players in NBA history? And uh, the answer, by the way, is Bill Russell. And if you don't know who Bill Russell is, it's because you're dumb, right? No, I'm just kidding. Or you don't follow basketball. But 
I don't remember the stats, but that guy won, like, he played 13 seasons and won 11 championships or something like that. Like, I don't even know how we have the conversation about who's the greatest player of all time. Um, anyway, but when we're talking about the greatest player of all time, we never really ask, well, what player was the best at investing in the rookies who probably weren't going to be in the league very long, right? What player was the nicest to the coaches and the staff of the team, right? Who was the nicest to all the fans? We don't usually ask that stuff. Who helped the other players the most? That's kind of exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, he says, I'm the greatest, right? Jesus is the greatest, and I spend my time investing in the lowest of the low. And so if you want to be truly great, you're going to have to do the same kind of things that I do. And that is so counterintuitive to the power structures that the disciples had grown up with, and pretty much everybody in human history has grown up with. Um, we've learned and our sinful hearts create these power structures that says, I got to push my way to the top so that the people underneath can prop me up. And Jesus says, no, 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 right? If you want to be part of the upside down kingdom, you have to push your way to the bottom and serve the lowest of the low. And so your argument on the road doesn't make any sense because you're not even heading in the right direction. And so do they get it? Do, do they say, you know what, Jesus, you're right. I've been, I've been selfish and I, I'm sorry, and I want to do better. Is that what happens? Nope. Verse 49. Look at this. I, I, again, I really applaud the apostles who told Luke this story and just like their honesty about what happens here because it just keeps getting worse. Verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Okay, wait. So Jesus says, look, you guys are so selfish and you guys are trying to push your way to the top and you're just, you're concerned about yourself and not really about the upside down kingdom. Well, yeah, oh, but we saw this other guy and he was casting out demons and we tried to stop him because he wasn't one of the 12. Excuse me, right? So let's, let's look at this. Who was this other guy? What do we know about this other guy? Well, Luke, none of the gospels really give us any information about this guy. Here's what we can tell. He was some sort of a follower of Jesus. Um, he may have been part of that wider group of um, 70 disciples. He may have been somebody else. We don't know. Um, but he was genuinely casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And so um, just like the disciples were when they did their um, their missionary journeys and, the way, and they went around casting out demons, just like Jesus has been doing, um, right? So this guy is genuinely a follower of Jesus. Uh, he's casting out demons. And John and the disciples are jealous. They're jealous. They're mad about it, Right? The disciples saw this guy do it, and they tried to stop his ministry. So first, I think it's hilarious how it says we tried to stop him. Again, the implication being, but we couldn't, right? Uh, they were not able to stop this guy from healing people and from uh, freeing them from the oppression of demonic forces. And so, um, right, at some point, Jesus wasn't around, and the disciples actually saw this guy helping people and casting out demons. And the crowd was probably really into it, and the jealousy inside of them boiled up. Right, and they they asked the guy, "How'd you do it?" And he starts to tell them, you know, in the name of Jesus and all this stuff. And then John busts in, "No, you don't really know Jesus. I'm one of the twelve. You need to stop this. You need to stop your healing, and you need to stop helping these people." And then they get into a big argument, and at the end of it, the guy refuses. Right? He's like, "No, I'm not going to stop. Right? I'm a follower of Jesus too." And he takes off, and he goes and he goes to the next town, starts casting out more demons. So John leaves, and he's fine. I'm going to tell on you. Right? I'm going to tell Jesus on you. And so do you see the pride in John's heart there? How much like to see 
Like how opposed you have to be to the upside down kingdom of God to just have that kind of pride well up, well up within you and say, be that jealous of somebody who's doing an amazing thing. If I can't do the good thing, I don't want anybody else to do it either. That's the attitude that says, really at its heart, it's saying the kingdom is about me and it's not really about anybody else. It's not about Jesus. And that, my friends, is dangerous territory to be in. So what should their response have been? Right? When they saw this guy casting out demons, how should they have handled it? Well, there's actually a great example of this from the book of Numbers with Moses. Um, and I'll read this to you. This is from uh, Numbers 11. And a young man ran and told Moses, Elad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, you know, who would go on to be the leader, Joshua, um, he said, Lord Moses, stop them. So it's the same kind of thing, right? These other two guys are having these prophetic you know, these uh, prophetic moments or whatever, and uh, people are running and telling Moses, these guys are prophesying too, you should stop them. <laughs> um, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Do you see what Moses does that these disciples don't do? Right, That's what real discipleship looks like. They come to Moses and they say, dude, these other guys are doing this too. And Moses is like, great right? Why should I be the only prophet? This isn't about me, it's about God, right? That's what the disciples should have done. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. So if this other guy is casting out demons, great. It's amazing, right? It's all part of the kingdom. That's not what happens though. That's not what they do. Now there's a modern application here that we could do an entire sermon series on that I just want to briefly touch on. But it's sad to see how much of this spirit still happens within the church today especially like an American evangelical world, right? And especially in the church planting world. A church planting especially attracts go-getters and pastors with a lot of drive and guys like that, and I'm, I can be like this too sometimes and I hate it, um, can be very competitive in a sinful way. But um, it's not always like this. So I, I just want to give you three like really good examples of places where I've seen this work well and I've been encouraged. So the first was Toby and Christchurch. Um, when they took me in, um, and well, they do two things, right? Toby's like a very uh, unifying pastor. He wants churches to, to uh, band together in the city, so he's always bringing pastors together, with it, which I love. And part of how part of that mission, my chair, part of that mission is um, to church plant. And so he brought me in, and he told me you can talk to anybody, and you can bring people with you. And that's how he ended up with Stephen and. Uh, Kim, you know, and so he was just like, hey, this is the kingdom of God, and I love this city, and I want you to go out and succeed. And that's the same attitude that happened with the partnership with the Evangelical Free Church, um, you know, that's kind of our mother church, uh, who is helping us greatly. It's the same thing. They said, look, it's all the kingdom, and this doesn't have to be us, and we want to help the porch go forward and continue. And then the third example that I'll give you is I was in a, a church planting group with some of um like uh, out of Tim Keller's church in, um, in uh, New York City. And this group's called City to City, and it's about urban planting and all this stuff. And it was a two-year program, and it's really amazing. But what happened was they got us all together. And on the first day, they basically ripped into us. And they said, look, guys, there's going to be none of this crap, uh, this competitive garbage in this group. So if somebody in our group succeeds, we're going to celebrate. And we're going to be excited because that's the kingdom of God. And if somebody is not doing well, we're going to mourn with them. Um, right. And so they said, this is not a bunch of churches competing with each other. Right. But anyway, so 
that's really an attitude I want us to have as the porch, right? Is to look at other ministries and be thankful and uh, praise the Lord that his name is being glorified. And so that's kind of what Jesus says in verse 50, right? Um, His response, he says, but Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. Right, so don't stop him. Why would you try to stop somebody who, A, is doing good works and who's doing them in my name, right? Jesus is saying, guys, like, you really are missing the mark here. And then he says, the one who is not against you is for you, without really parsing that out. The basic idea of that is clear, right? There's going to be a lot of people in the kingdom working for Jesus, and not all of those people are going to be one of the twelve. And so he's telling these guys, you guys got to get used to that, right? You should celebrate their work, not tear it down, because we're all... Um, Sorry, we're all on the same team, right? We're all in this together. Now, keep going. Verse 51. This is a very important sort of pivotal verse. It's a, it's a, one of the major verses in the book of Luke. It says, verse 51, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is a huge turning point in the book of Luke that we've, I already mentioned a couple weeks ago in the sermon, but basically what happens now is Jesus turns from his ministry in the region of Galilee, and he it says he sets his face towards Jerusalem, where the whole book now is going to be about him heading on this mission towards the cross. And as he does that, the focus now shifts from sort of this big, wide, outward ministry to like really focusing on these 12 guys. And I'm really going to train and get these guys ready for what's coming in his, um, you know, in the death and resurrection and the ascension and all that stuff. And so now is the part where Uh, You know, in the book of Luke, we're going to see a bunch of parables and a lot of teaching and all this stuff. But it all happens in the framework of Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. And the disciples now are going to have to decide who Jesus is. You know, I'm sorry, now that they've decided who Jesus is. um, If you remember that part with the, you know, who do the crowd say that I am? Who do you say I am? Peter's like, dude, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now that they've decided that that's true, we're going to see this shift where Jesus is now trying to really teach them what that means. What does it mean to follow the suffering servant? What does it mean to follow the, 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 the Messiah of God, right? The Christ. And to work in this upside down kingdom. And so a lot of what we're going to see coming up here, the kingdom parables and the good Samaritan, a lot of this stuff, right? That the disciples really don't seem to get. And again, this just keeps getting worse. What happens here? Verse 52. And he sent messengers ahead of him who entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So there's a long history that I'm mostly going to save because I'm going to really get into this um, in uh, just a little bit. Wait, is that the next? It's coming up here. Where is it? The parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah, it's in chapter 10. So uh, when we start this back up with the book of Luke after the summer, uh, we're going to get into the Good Samaritan. I'm going to save a lot of the history of the Samaritan-Jewish tension for that, but I'll just give you the quick, uh, you know, 30-second version here. I don't know. The quick version of the history. So back in the day, a whole bunch of Jewish people lived in the land of Israel. They were taken into exile. Uh, Most of them were taken into exile, but not all of them. Some of them ended up staying behind, and a lot of the ones who stayed behind ended up intermarrying with some of the pagan folks who who lived in the region, who had been moved into the region um, to try to repopulate the area, right? And so that group of part Jewish folks, was they were called Samaritans because they lived in uh, an area right around the city of Samaria, right? That was kind of their home base. And so they're not full-blooded Jewish folks. And um, that group of people 
ended up sort of setting up their own Safeway brand version of the religion of Yahweh and the covenant of God. And so they built their own fake temple. Uh, they had their own version of the Torah. They had their own priests. And that caused a lot of tension between uh, the Jewish folks who were full Jewish and uh, these Samaritans. And these two groups, there was a lot of just... Um, there's a lot of tension. There was a lot of racism that was going on here. Um, and at one point during the Maccabean years, a little bit before the coming of Jesus, so during that intertestamental period, some of the Jewish folks went up there and they destroyed the temple of the Samaritans. And, um, you know, as a, as a part of the way that they were trying to prevent another exile from happening, and they were trying to serve Yahweh in the way that they knew best how to do that. And that was part of that was getting rid of this false religion. And so if you remember, even the woman at the well brings this up with Jesus, the Samaritan woman, um, at towards the beginning of John there. And, um, she, you know, she talks about, well, you know, you worship this, you know, all that stuff. There was, it, there, there was a lot of tension here, right? So we have all this tension. Um, but we also have ancient Near Eastern hospitality culture. That's the other bit that kind of comes into play here. And we've talked a bunch about this, but there weren't really hotels like we have now. You couldn't book a room at a Holiday Inn or whatever. When you would come into a town, you would find somebody who would put you up. And people did. Um, they would have overnight guests who were moving through town or whatever. And refusing a traveler a place to stay was a huge deal in this culture. That was big doings. Um, and it didn't really happen a lot. So Jesus sends his disciples into this Samaritan town ahead of him so they can try to find a place for all of them to crash for the night. And they're turned away by every, you know, by group after group. Disciples go from house to house and they go to the marketplace and they try to find somebody and everybody refuses them. Um, the real reason for the rejection uh, by the entire Samaritan uh, the entire Samaritan town, right? What was the reason for the rejection, right? Um, well, first off, let me say this. Just the idea of rejection was a big deal, okay? So in our ears, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Well, no, I mean, you know, how many people would, do you take in, just random strangers, do you let sleep on your couch, right? We don't really do this in our culture. But in the ancient world, anybody hearing this, it would have been shocking, right? Hospitality refused, travelers turned away and put in danger from robbers and wild animals and stuff like that. Why? Why was the hospitality refused. Why was the, the stay rejected? Well, because they were heading towards Jerusalem. And so this is where we need a little bit of a geography lesson to go along with our history lesson and our cultural studies lesson that we just did, right? Um, the, Jerusalem is uh, atop a mountain, but it's in sort of the southern part of the land of Israel. Galilee, where Jesus had been doing most of this ministry for all this time, was in the northern part of the land of Israel. And so the area between those two parts is the area where the Samaritans lived. And most of um, the folks who would travel between the north and the south, they would walk around Samaria. And so Jesus didn't, though. He walked right through it. And um, the disciples, as they come into this town, they start asking around, and everybody starts asking them this question. Yeah, oh, hey, how's it going? Well, where are you headed? Um, now, I mean, the ones that they could talk to, there was actually probably a lot of tension just for Jewish people being in the Samaritan town. Um, but he asks them, you know, people ask, where, where, where are you heading? So they start to tell the story and, um, you know, hey, we're heading. And, you know, like, what did G Luke just tell us about Jesus, right? He has his face set towards Jerusalem. He is heading towards the temple and then he's heading towards the cross and the death and resurrection, right? And so this is the reason that they were refused hospitality because they were heading to the temple in Jerusalem to participate in the worship system there, as far as anybody knew, into what the Samaritans considered a false religion and a, like a, um, a 
competing religion who had been oppressing them and had even destroyed their temple. So it's kind of like, imagine if a person looking for somewhere to stay in San Francisco wanted to crash on your couch. Oh yeah, where are you headed? You know? Oh yeah, we're driving down the coast um, from Seattle to LA. Oh, why are you going to LA? Oh, we're huge Dodger fans. We're going to the Dodgers game. Get out of my house. Right? That's how that would go. Uh, that's exactly what happens here, right? Oh yeah, we're heading to Jerusalem and you know, get out of my house. Um, how do you think, so that's the situation. How do you think the disciples handle this without reading ahead, right? Just think to yourself, with what we've just read about these disciples and their self-centeredness, how do you think they handled this rejection by this group of people that they already hated, right? Um, yeah, I'll give you a hint, right? They do not act the way that they would we would hope somebody with kingdom values would act. Look at this, verse 54. And when the disciples, when his disciples, James and John, so the two brothers, when they saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's like one of the funniest verses in the entire Bible. But anyway, um, there's there's some context here. Uh, this seems like odd, right? Like these guys reject us, burn them, right? Jesus, burn them. Um, well, anyway, let me read to you just real quick because I'm already, my sermon's running later than I thought. But, oh wait, here we go. First Kings, where am I going? First Kings, now I'm going to Second Kings. So if you have your Bible, flip over to Second Kings chapter one and let me read to you. So this is, uh, this is a story about Elisha the prophet. Um, I always have to say that really clear. Sorry, Elijah the prophet, not Elisha. I always have to say that really clear. Right. Anyway, verse 9. The king sent to him, so they're trying to arrest Elijah. The king sent to him a captain of 50 men um, with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And again, the king sent a captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of the fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let, let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed two former captains of fifty with their men, uh, with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. And then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him and do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down to the king. Anyway, and it goes on, you know, and tells the rest of the story. So... So odds are that <clears throat> that incident was fresh in the mind of James and John. They remembered, right? One time, Elijah was hanging out on this hilltop, and the king wanted to arrest him, so he sent some soldiers, and they were like, man of God, come with us. And he was, oh, if I'm a man of God, then you're about to be burned with fire from heaven, right? <clears throat> burned, torched him. Horrible scene. <laughs> and then it happens again. You know, fire from heaven, torched him. Then the third guy comes, and he falls on his knees. He starts begging Elijah, please don't torch me. Like, I'm just trying to do my job. Will you please just come with me? I, if I go back, he's going to kill me. If I stay here, you're going to kill me. I don't know what to do here. Now, the disciples probably had this story in their mind. The man of God rejected. You know, and they're probably thinking, well, Jesus is greater than Elijah, right? So what do we do when somebody rejects somebody who's even greater than Elijah, right? Why not? This is a huge insult. Why not call down fire from heaven? 
Well, again, because that's not the kingdom that Jesus is preaching. It happened in the Old Testament, sure. That was kind of, there was other circumstances there. Um, but that's, you know, these these guys weren't trying to arrest and murder Jesus yet, right? They're just, they didn't want him to stay. Anyway, the disciples way overreacted. And so Jesus in verse 55, he turns and rebukes them. And then they went on to another village, right? And that's how the passage ends. So later on, Jesus would even nickname these two, James and John, the sons of thunder. And I, most scholars, and I think that this is probably true, it's a joke because of their rash, quick reaction here with this Samaritan village. But Jesus rebukes them. Now, why? What's the real reason? Well, why was James and John probably upset? It wasn't because they rejected Jesus. It was because they rejected James and John, right? This was the kind of pride, like, how dare you refuse me a place to stay, right? And pride rears its ugly head. Anyway, so Jesus sort of rebukes them and tries again to explain the upside-down kingdom, and then they move on, heading towards Jerusalem, heading towards the cross. So anyway, we had four sections today in the text. Let's look at all four of them. First, Jesus teaches about his death and resurrection. Disciples don't get it. Second, they argue about which one of us is going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Okay, you really don't understand the upside-down kingdom. The third one, they get jealous about some dude who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Still don't get it. And fourth, they're refused hospitality, and they want to murder people because of it, right, who offended them. So you can see here the connecting thread, right? These disciples are selfish and self-centered, and they're seeing the world as that right-side-up power structure, right? The, the, the right-side-up, uh, you know, the triangle, the normal power structure triangle, that if you're important, you sit on the top and everybody else holds you up. Everybody else serves you. And they're doing what comes natural to a fallen and a broken heart. Uh, because remember, like we talk about a lot in Eden, this was the first sin, was saying to, to the Lord, I don't want you to be the Lord, I want to be the Lord. I want to make the decisions. I'm not going to obey you. I'm going to be the center. And that's our fallen heart. And that's the fallen heart that's created this power structure. And it's actually interesting that I've been calling it the upside down kingdom, because actually the upside down kingdom is the broken way that we do it. And the kingdom of God, it should be the right side up kingdom. But, you know, from our perspective of broken and fallenness, it's the upside down kingdom, right? But this just sort of selfish and this power structure where we try to push our way to the top and get other people to serve us, that is not the way of our king. That is not the way of the gospel story. To follow our king means to live like our king. To not be a self-centered punk, um, but to be somebody who is humble and, and serves people who offer you nothing in return. To find the people at the bottom of the ladder and to love them greatly. We don't need to get jealous of other ministries. We need to celebrate them and ex and um, uh, worship God that his kingdom is, ex you know, because his kingdom is expanding. We don't need to flip out when we're offended uh, because we love our enemies, right? That's the way of our king, and that should be the way of his people. And one of the things I love about the book of Revelation, and if you remember, we've talked about the book of Revelation um, as, you know, it's probably my favorite book of the Bible. But in the book of Revelation, it's not the secret code to the end times. It's it's a story that tells sort of this pattern of how church history is going to play out. And it's going to play out like this. The church is going to be oppressed, but the people of God are going to triumph. But not triumph by winning. They're going to triumph by losing. And by serving and being humble and loving their enemies. And persevering through the tribulation and through tough times when things aren't going well. 
And uh, that's the way of the people of God. That's the way, the upside-down kingdom. And so you can see, to just then finish and apply this to ourselves, you can see that this is a very simple passage to apply to our own lives and to our church. As you move closer to Jesus, look for areas in your life where you aren't living into the upside-down kingdom. What are you putting, uh, sorry, where are you putting yourself first? when Jesus wouldn't want you to do that? Where are you getting angry? Not because of like um, justice and because something bad is happening to somebody else, but because you're proud and because something bad has happened to you. Where are you competing and being jealous of others? Maybe it's at work, maybe it's in other ministries, whatever it is, like where Jesus wouldn't want you to do that. The way it works is the more time that you spend with Jesus, the more time you'll spend in his presence. And when that happens, the more you will reflect his love and you will reflect his humility and you will embody the principles of the upside down kingdom. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for our church. I want us to be a whole bunch of people that love and serve people who can't pay us back. I want us to be humble. I want us to be Uh, the kind of people who glorify God because other ministries are going well, and the kind of people who don't push our way to the top of the world's power structure, but are trying to push our way to the bottom of the upside-down kingdom so that we can be close to Jesus and we can help hold other people up. Amen? Let's pray. God, we admit that a lot of times we function in our lives through backwards um, power structures, through, um, you know, the broken systems of the world. And we just ask for the empowerment of your spirit and new hearts uh, to kind of live for you and to live the way that you would want us to live. So we give you our our lives, our, our souls. We give you um, our church. We ask you to be the Lord of all. But uh, as you do that, Lord, we ask that you would make us humble, make us loving, you know, make us like you. Amen.